would have been more helpful if the audio was up for it, but hey, you get the general idea. Today we're starting a new sermon series. We finished uh, our doctrines uh, series uh, just a couple weeks ago, and now we are moving on into our new uh, sermon series that will take us through uh, to the Christmas season. Can you believe that we're that close already? That we're, we're, we're Christmas is right around the corner. It's a little bit insane. Uh, but doesn't it though? Like I looked at, the, I looked at the, the date today and realized that the Halloween carnival was in five days. I didn't realize it was that close. So I thought I had an extra week. It snuck away from me. But we're starting this sermon. It's going to last six weeks. It's going to be uh, looking at the prophets, the priests, and the kings uh, in the Old Testament that God gave to his people. And so we're going to uh, begin uh, with uh, some prophets. We're going to begin with some prophets. Now I can walk. You guys don't know I've, I've been missing being able to, to walk away from the pulpit. But uh, So we're going to start with perhaps, uh, I would consider him the most famous prophet of the Old Testament. He's the person who wrote the first five books of the Bible. He's the greatest prophet in the nation of Israel. And so we're, today we're going to look at sort of the life and ministry of Moses and how God gifted the people of Israel uh, with such a fantastic leader. Um, but before I begin, uh, what I need to do is actually define what a prophet is so that we're all on the same page. Uh, and, and right here, I actually have a little bit of a definition. Uh, a prophet is a person that hears the voice of God and is used as his instrument. Now, this gets a little bit problematic when looking at the prophets of the, uh, of the people in the Bible because almost everyone in the Bible at one point or another heard the voice of God and was used as his instrument. So Adam, uh, as an example, the, the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, heard the voice of God. They talked with God, and, 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 and God used them to, to name the animals and to do all the, the stuff that they were supposed to do. And so, so Adam actually fits into the definition of, of a prophet. Um, the problem is, so does uh, Cain and Abel and Noah and, 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 and a whole bunch of you swing a stick uh, you'll hit someone who heard the voice of God and was used as his instrument. To put this a, a, a different way that maybe some of you will get, in the book of Numbers, there's a story uh, about a guy named Balaam who had a donkey who uh, uh, turned around one day and started talking to Balaam. So if we're going by this as the definition, a person, so maybe we skip out there, but this donkey heard the voice of God and then was used as his instrument. So was that donkey a prophet? Maybe. I don't know. But what we're going to look at is this guy called Moses. How many of you are familiar with the story of Moses? Uh, I grew up watching the movie The Ten Commandments. Uh, this is Charlton Heston. This is the, this is the regal Moses. Are you, are you familiar with this version? Uh, if you're under a certain age, perhaps you're more familiar with The Prince of Egypt where they apparently went chariot racing over the nose of the Sphinx. I don't exactly know how that worked, but it defied the laws of physics. So you might be familiar with the narrative of Moses. And so uh, if you are, that's fine. We're going to go over it again because you can never be too familiar. And maybe there's some things in this particular series that will uh, pop out to you that uh, really you didn't, didn't know before or didn't notice before. So we're going to begin just looking at the life of Moses. Uh, 
Moses was born into slavery. Uh, the nation of Israel, in case you, you want the backstory, it's really quite simple. Uh, Joseph had uh, moved into Egypt. He'd become the second most powerful man in all of the nation. In fact, entire world right there because Egypt had a, a, a world empire at the time. So he became this really important figure. Uh, at the end of his life, all of his family, all of his brothers, they moved into Egypt and they settled down and they settled down for about 500 years. Long time. And they, they multiplied. And what Scripture tells us is that the Egyptians forgot everything that Joseph and the God of the Israelites had done for the nation of, of Egypt. And so they, they enslaved the Israelite people. There, there's a, a lesson there that's not in my notes, that sometimes God moves you into a place for a season, uh, a period of time, and then sometimes you can get in trouble when it gets just a little too comfortable. God wants to move you out, but you say, no, 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 God, I'm comfortable where I am. And sometimes what God intends for a season, we get too comfortable in, and we end up in a lifetime, and then that lifetime ends up in a place of slavery. And so the, the Israelites are there in Egypt. And the Pharaoh says, look, these guys are becoming more powerful than I can then we can know what to do with. There's too many of them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be uh, a, an evil person and I am going to kill all of the firstborn males of the Israelites, sort of like, let's just knock that, that reproduction stuff straight, you know, knock it on the head. And, and so uh, he went around and they started killing all of the infants uh, in the nation of Israel. And so Moses' mother, God bless her, here's another short lesson from the life of Moses or his mother, Sometimes the will of God looks like disobedient to government authorities. And that, that's a, a really difficult concept for us to get uh, in westernized society, especially in the United States of America where we're taught, if you say anything against your government, then you're being unpatriotic. I would actually submit to you that the most patriotic thing you can do is dissent when a moral imperative is in question. If a government tells you to do something that is unethical or immoral, I believe it's actually our patriotic duty. And in case you're wondering, I celebrated my one-year anniversary of being a citizen uh, on the 17th of October. One year as a U.S. citizen. So I can talk about this stuff. I know I've still got a foreign accent. That's okay. But I'm American, so I can talk about this stuff. And my, my true belief is sometimes when an egregious moral action is being forced down our throats, the most holy thing we can do and patriotic thing we can do is stand up and say no. And that's what, that's what mother, Moses' mother did. She was told that her son was going to be killed uh, because that's what Pharaoh, the government, had decided was going to happen. And she said, no, I don't want my son to be killed. Uh, and so what she did is she actually put him into a basket and decided to float that basket down the Nile. Now, straight away, I have questions. The Nile was filled with crocodiles. So I don't know how that's any safer. She puts him in a basket... Is that thing going to float on the Nile? I don't know. It doesn't seem safer. So I, I have some questions about the way she decided she was going to uh, hide Moses, but she did, and, and that basket traveled down, and it traveled down to the Pharaoh's house, and the, the way that it happened is that the rich people, especially Pharaoh, had palaces that sort of backed out onto the Nile River. So you guys know that if you're, if you're rich, and uh, the best thing that you can have is beachfront property. That's what Pharaoh had. He had the best of beachfront property. And one day, his daughter was down by the Nile. We, uh, I think she was bathing or doing some laundry. I don't know what she was doing, but she saw a baby floating along in a basket. 
and she draws the basket out and says, this baby clearly needs a more engaged mother than the one that would put her in a basket and float him down the river. I'm going to be that. And so she actually adopted Moses. And so this Jewish Israelite boy who was supposed to be dead actually found himself under the care of the Pharaoh's daughter. And, and, and the lesson there is really quite simple. God will use anyone, even someone who doesn't know God, to do his will in certain situations. A lot of times as Christians, what we, we, we get this idea that uh, you know we're going to be the instruments of God and it's only going to be us and it's only going to be, but that's not biblical. Over and over and over again in Scripture, God uses objects and things and people who are not in his will. He used a donkey to talk. He used the daughter of Pharaoh to get his will accomplished. Sometimes God will use things outside of the realm of Christianity and, and Christendom. And I think sometimes we get in trouble when we say, no, God doesn't work like that. God can't work like that. And we, we actually try and put a limitation onto the power of God. So Mo Moses is born into a foreign house. Uh, and so, so he grows up, he's, he's the, the, the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's his granddad. That sounds like, like a good thing. I don't know. Um, and so, so he's born into a house that is, is, uh, has power and has influence. But everyone knew that Moses wasn't a biological person of the Pharaoh's household. He wasn't biologically re related. And in those days, blood meant more than anything else. And so I believe that Moses was then also raised to know that he was different. He is a Hebrew growing up in the Egyptian household, he had to know from a very early age that he was different. Sometimes God puts you into a situation where you're the one that's going to be different than everyone else. Sometimes you're going to be the foreigner in Pharaoh's household. That could be in your school. That could be in your workplace. It could be wherever you have and do life. Sometimes you're the one that because of your faith in Christ, you're going to be the one that's just a little bit weirder than everyone else. Because everyone else says, man, you know, Saturdays are for sleeping in and football. Sorry, Sundays are for sleeping in and football. And you say, no, Sundays is the Lord's day. I'm going to church. Why would you want to go to church? Why would you want to get out of bed at 7.30, roll into the car, get here, set up a sound system so that you can... can why would you want to go to all that effort? Man, you're just a little bit weirder than everybody else. Moses was raised to know that he was different. Now, Moses' life, uh, there's a little bit of non-information about how he was raised. And so what I actually believe is that uh, Moses' mother was engaged by Pharaoh's daughter to be his wet nurse, to raise him from a certain age to a certain age. And if you know anything about Hebrew culture, uh, Israelites... Jews actually get the mo majority of their instructions from their mothers bef between the ages of zero and five. That's where they start learning things. Um, um, a lot of times we look at scripture and we say, man, it's very, very male-centric. It focuses on, on the male and what they can do. But, but in scripture, what you'll find is that the mothers are actually responsible for raising their kids from zero to five years old and teaching them the foundations and fundamentals of their faith in the one true God. We know this because uh, people like Mary are able to quote 
entire psalms. They have it memorized. And so, so what we know is that uh, their tradition is that they, the, the parents, the mothers, really teach their kids the way that God is. And so what I believe is that as Moses is being raised in Pharaoh's household, in a foreign uh, house, uh, maybe being taught to read and write Egyptian, I believe that Moses' mother uh, also taught him the basics of the Hebrew faith. We have one God. Here's what his name is. Here's, here's who he is. Here's what he does. And so because of the faith of this mother who defied the government, put her baby in a basket and sent him down the river, he is being raised to know not only Egyptian he, uh, history but also Hebrew history. He is being raised to know about the Egypt, Egyptian form of government and religion, but he's also being raised as an Israelite to know the one true God. And that becomes really important in just a, a couple of minutes. We're going to get to his calling. But what you need to know about Moses is one day he's a grown man, he's wandering around, and he sees an Egyptian beating another Hebrew slave. And so he loses his tempo or the heat of the moment gets to him and actually kills the Egyptian. And scripture says that he buried his body in the sand so that no one would know that he'd done this thing. And then a couple of days later, Moses breaks up an argument between two Hebrews. And one of the Hebrews turns to him and says, aren't you the guy that killed that Egyptian? And Moses suddenly realizes people know what I did. Here's another lesson from the life of Moses. Sometimes you think your sin is a private thing that no one knows about, but the reality is, is the God of the universe knows your sin because he sees all, and sin never stays private for long. Your sin, even though you think it is a secret thing between you and no one else, your sin will not stay secret for very long. And so Moses, fearing the uh, fearing that uh, uh, he's going to get in trouble, that he himself is going to die for killing an Egyptian. He flees Egypt and goes out into the desert. Uh, he literally stumbles across his wife. His wife is uh, a, a shepherdess in the region. She's doing her thing. Uh, he comes to the well and sits down. She's watering the flocks. Some bad guys come in and say, hey, you know, and start being mean to, the, to his future wife. And he, he jumps up and defends her and then waters the flock for her. The lesson there is always help a, a, a beautiful lady if she's in trouble. And, I, and, and that could be beautiful on the inside. It could be beautiful on the outside. I've got no judgments. I don't know what this woman looked like. But Moses jumped up and he got in there and he helped. Maybe it isn't about helping a beautiful lady. Maybe it's about help a stranger. Help someone you don't know simply because it's the right thing to do. And Moses ends up marrying this lady. He gets Jethro, a father-in-law of father-in-laws. He's a good guy. We don't have time to get into the story of Jethro. I wish we did. Uh, but what Scripture tells us is he then spent 40 years in this particular place uh, tending sheep. He went from being in Pharaoh's household, a place of influence, a place of affluence. He had money, position, power, and authority. And he went from that to wandering around the desert for 40 years with sheep. Have you all met sheep? I have. I'm not fond of sheep. They are stupid. They make bad decisions. They are smelly. They get flies. They're not good company. Now, give me a cat. A cat is good company, but a sheep, not so much. And so Moses, who looked like his life was heading in this trajectory, 
turns out his life is now heading uh, in, in this direction. A- and the lesson there is sometimes God is going to knock you off your high horse when your pride gets in the way of his will. He's going to say to you, no, that's, that's not where I've called you to. That's not what I've called you to. We have to go in a different direction. And what's interesting is what my belief, and this is just my personal belief, but this is where I believe that, that Moses actually wrote the book of Genesis. See, Moses had learned the oral history of his people probably from his mother. Uh, there are other people in this region that knew the oral traditions. And if you've got 40 years, I think that you could take some time to write down the, the, the book of Genesis and to record it. Uh, I, I don't know if that's actually when he wrote it, but that's what, what I believe is that that's when he wrote this book. And so, so now we're going to get on to his calling. This is the calling of Moses. And even if you don't have a history in the church, you probably have heard this particular story, the story of the burning bush. Yes? We know this uh, as a very famous story. And so I'm going to, as I read for us uh, early, I'm going to read just a couple of verses here. But this is what God's word says. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And for me, this raises a bunch of questions. For you, right? In that couple of verses, wasn't there, there a whole lot of questions that pop out. The first is that he was leading his flock uh, to a place called Horeb. Horeb literally means desolate desert. Now, I don't know much about keeping flocks, sheep, cattle, any of that kind of stuff, but I do know that you take them where they should eat. That's the whole point, right? You take them where they're going to eat. And so Moses here is a horrible shepherd because he takes his flock to a place which literally means desolate desert. No water, no food, and these poor sheep are out here in the middle. Well, go out into the desert in the middle of summer and, and, and you'll get where what this region looks like. This desolate desert. And then, and then it says that he, he, is, he sees rather a bush that is burning yet not consumed. I have questions there, but we don't have time to go into that. And it says that, that Moses saw it and said to himself, I need to, have, I need to check this out. Let, let's go over here and check it out. And so he goes over and he checks out this bush that's burning, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Moses, don't go any further. The place that you're standing is holy ground. Take the shoes from your feet. And so Moses doesn't question, which is, is probably one of the best things that he did in, in most of Scripture. He didn't question this. He takes the shoes from his feet. He approaches the bush, and he has an encounter with the living God. We're going to come back to that, because I think that's, that's really important. Moses gets a commission and a calling from God. God says, I want you to be my voice. I want you to go out into the, the house of Egypt. I want you to go into the land of Egypt and I want you to free my people. I've heard they're groaning from, uh, I've heard they're groaning, uh, from heaven and I want to, to release them from their agony. I want to take them out into the desert so that they can be once again my people. And Moses 
uh, instead of saying, yes, Lord, right away, Lord, let's do this, says, um, I got a few problems. He says, Lord, I'm not an eloquent speaker. My tongue doesn't really do good things. Why do you think that you need to explain to the one who created you your flaws? Do you not think that the God who created the universe that spoke everything into existence, who knows you intimately, Scripture says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. He has known you since uh, before the creation of the world. Do you not know, do you not think that God knows that maybe you stutter just a little bit? (coughs) Maybe he knows that you get embarrassed speaking to large crowds. Maybe he knows you get embarrassed speaking one-on-one with people. Maybe he knows that you can't, memorize scripture as good as maybe Bart can. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe he knows that you're not as good a singer or a guitar player as Matt is. And, and yet what we do in, in our lives is, uh, is we know the scripture, bring your, your life to God as a holy and pleasing sacrifice. Uh, lay your body on the altar as a living sacrifice. Give it all up to God. We know these scriptures in our hearts, and instead what we do is we let our minds get in the way And we bring our mind to God and we say, hey, God, I can't do that. You don't understand. I can't do that. And God says, you don't understand. I created you. I know you can do that. I know you're afraid, but trust in me. Here's here's the, the lesson, is that God will provide you what you need in order to get his will accomplished. God is not in the habit of saying, I want you to move mountains, but you have to do it by yourself. God is not in the habit of saying, you need to get this accomplished, but you need to do it by yourself. What God is in the habit of doing is saying, trust in me, do what I say, and I will provide you the strength required. I will provide the talent required. God says in his scripture that he will supply all our needs according to his riches and uh, glorious graces. That's not about you being able to do whatever you want. It's about you being able to follow the will of God on your life and being able to do everything that he asks you through his power and his glory. And so God provided uh, a, a way of Moses to be able to talk in front of large crowds. He got his brother involved. And then, and then Moses, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff. He threw the stuff on the, the ground. It turned to, ins- uh, to a snake. He put his, his hand inside his coat, and it came out all leprosy. Uh, miracle upon miracle, and God sent him into Egypt. Uh, uh, we know then from the movie Ten Commandments that we discussed earlier what happened from that point onward. Uh, Let my people go. You know, that line, these two are looking at me blankly. They've never seen the movie. You need to see it. Good movie. Um, that Prince of Egypt thing is, is ridiculous. <laughs> and the, what happens is that the will of God is accomplished. Interestingly, in Scripture, uh, it says five times that Pharaoh's heart hardened, and five other times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I always thought in the back of my head that this was uh, to confuse Wesleyans and, and Calvinists because uh, five times it said that God did it, and the other five times it was Pharaoh's choice. I think it was just God's way of messing with us. Am I, am I wrong? No, I'm not wrong. Of course not. Um, and, and so he takes out, uh, there are conservative, uh, small number estimates. Some people think it was 750,000 people. Uh, there are other estimates that take the number up into about 3 million. 
the, the reality is scripture doesn't give us a def, uh, definitive number. Um, so let's just shoot somewhere in the middle there, maybe about 2 million uh, Israelites. It says that they plunder the nation of Israel. They took, uh, they took cattle, they took goats, donkeys, sheep, they took gold, they took jewels. They plundered the nation on their way out. Essentially, the Egyptians were just saying, take it all as long as you go. You know that final guest at the party who's still there eating, and you're like, you know, if you just take that tray, you can go right now. No, just me. I'm the only one that's ever been in that position in a party. Okay, so apparently you're a lot holier than me. And then what happens is they go out into the wilderness, and we sort of know what happens in the story. They disobey God. They wander around in the desert for 40 years. Everyone who, who disobeyed God ends up dying in the wilderness, and a whole new generation go in and take the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. Even though he served God his entire life, Scripture says that there was a mistake that he made in not trusting God that caused him to not go into the Holy Land. In fact, it says uh, at the end of the book of Exodus that God took him up a mountain and showed him the promised land and said, let your eyes get accustomed to it because your feet aren't going any further. Which is like stab twist, right? You get all the way to the goal line and it doesn't happen. The, uh, I didn't fully understand really uh, uh, what that, that would be like uh, until a few years ago there was a Super Bowl. And the Seattle Seahawks, my team, were playing the New England Patriots, which we can all agree is the worst team ever to ever exist, and we all hate them. Amen. That's the thing. You, you might not like the Seahawks. You might be a Rams fan. You might be a 49ers fan. I don't care. As long as you're not a Patriots fan, I think we can all agree, right? We're there. We're absolutely there. And, and, and it was a good game for the most part, and then something happened late. There was only a few minutes left, and the, the Seattle Seahawks had battled all the way down. They were in the red zone. They were on the two-yard line. At that point, you have a guy called Marshawn Lynch who can essentially carry, the, pick up the ball and run without anyone touching him. He was that good of a running back. He's on the two-yard line, and instead of giving the ball off to him, they decided they were going to throw a slant pass on the second down. It wasn't even the third down. It was the second down. And that ball got intercepted in the end zone. And they ran it out. And the Seattle Seahawks ended, and ended up losing that Super Bowl by one score. And it wasn't until... I was sitting in that moment. I had been invested that entire season up until that point. You don't want to know what my blood pressure was like because of the game right beforehand. My doctor thought I should already be dead. There was this disappointment that you got that close to the end and then you couldn't finish it off. And for the life of me, I honestly think maybe that's what Moses was feeling. That God takes him up and says, look, you didn't trust me, and there has to be consequences for actions. And the lesson from that moment in Moses' life is that there are consequences for your action that does not negate the love that God has for you, but there are consequences for your actions. Your sin has been forgiven by the holy God of the universe, but there are still consequences for that sin. If I have an affair... I fully believe that God can forgive me for that sin, but there's going to be consequences in my marriage. 
I go out, I go out and I shoot a person. I believe that God can forgive me of that sin, but there are going to be consequences for my actions. And one of the things that we do that really cheapens Christianity, cheapens what God has done for us, is we expect that there not be any consequences for our actions. We can be forgiven, I believe, for anything. Jesus says there, there's no unforgivable sins except for one blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You get five preachers in a room, you're going to get seven opinions on what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. So I'm not going to try and explain it right now. But my sins are forgivable in the eyes of God, but it doesn't mean that I remove the consequences. And so Moses doesn't get to go into the Holy Land. He dies. And because I don't want to end on such a almost down on, we're going to talk about the burning bush. We're going to talk about holy ground. Moses sees a bush that is burning and turns. Scripture says it uses the same word uh, that we use, uh, the word for repent. Uh, literally just means to turn and walk in the opposite direction. That's what repent means. And so it actually uses the same Hebrew word there uh, as it does for repent. It says that he turned and saw. And, and I find this, this fascinating simply because uh, of what comes next. He, he approaches this burning bush and he hears an angel of the Lord that says, take the shoes from your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground. What makes the ground holy? The presence of God. It's always great having a, uh, a retired officer in the, in the uh, congregation because they are not afraid of actually answering the, correct, uh, the questions correctly, which is great. The thing that makes the ground holy is the presence of God. And so this makes for uh, another, another question there, right? This, this, this begs another question. So if the presence of God is what makes the ground holy, and you and I have the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling in our lives, that means that you and I, on a daily basis, on a hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute basis, are standing on holy ground, uh, do you follow that logic? Does that logic work? So what happened is when Jesus died, the, the temple veil was torn, and it signified that no longer that God was going to be separated in his holiness from the sinfulness of man, but instead that you and I, through the death uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, could enter into the presence of God whenever we wanted through the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer, that you and I could be in the presence of God Always, which means if we take this through to conclusion that there are burning bushes all around us all the time. The difference is that Moses turned to see. A lot of times in our life, we are focused. We are going in this direction. The problem is that God wants us to turn and see his presence in our lives. And the problem is through our own stupidity, through our own pride, through our own whatever you want to insert here, we ignore the burning bush that God has sent to get your attention to turn and to enter into his presence. Moses was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit when he entered into the presence of the Lord. He threw his staff on the ground and it turned into a snake. That wasn't Moses doing that. He put his hand into his jacket and he pulled it out and it was covered in leprosy. 
Why wasn't Moses doing that? He put it back in and it turned white as snow again. Why wasn't Moses doing that? It's the Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit that filled Moses with the ability to sack Egypt lives in the heart of all who believes. Because that's what Jesus promised us. Scripture tells us that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in the heart of those that believe. So my question for ending this little lesson on the life of Moses, what are the burning bushes that you need to turn to? How is God trying to get your attention? Is the presence of God in your life, and are you just too busy to do something about it? A lot of times that busyness is us doing the Lord's work. No, God, just, just I'm too busy doing, I'm too busy preaching, just I'll get to you in a moment. No, Lord, I'm too busy leading the song, I'll get to you in a moment. No, Lord, I'm too busy doing this, reading scripture, I'm too busy doing this, that I'll get to you in a moment. And a lot of times God just says, just knock it off. Look, there's a bush over here. It's on fire. It's burning, but not being consumed. Come and have a look. Because when you do, you're going to step into my presence. We sang that song. I chose it for a reason. Over and over and over again, it said, your presence, Lord, is what we long for. Is it? Because I fully believe that we have a God who anytime you want to step into the presence of the living God, says, here I am. Come on in. Be with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the blessings that you've given us. Lord, we love you. And as we leave this place, Lord, we pray that the, your presence is known to us. That we are open to your Holy Spirit to be able to turn from what we're doing that could be good stuff, that could be important things, that could be godly things, but things that are distracting us from your presence. Lord, help us to recognize the burning bushes that are all around us all the time. Help us to enter into that holy presence and help us to be filled every day anew and afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing our benediction.